the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to The Dan Proft Show. So I'm in Dennis Prager land now. I, I sort of tuned out over the weekend, blah, 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 closing arguments, blah, blah, blah. I'm sort of done with it. Uh, you want to push off the acquittal past the State of the Union address tonight to tomorrow? Fine. The good news is it, it looks to be a bipartisan acquittal. And that's certainly going to be a problem for the Dems narrative. There are not enough problems with the Dems narrative. Also, you know, everything else is uh, turning up roses for the Democrats these days, too, from the performance of uh, their app and their ability to use an abacus in Iowa last night to uh, this story out of Milwaukee. This is uh, two top officials overseeing Milwaukee's host committee for the 2020 Democrat National Convention sidelined amid allegations of a toxic world, a work culture. A letter to staff obtained by Journal Sentinel, Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, said the board had retained an attorney to investigate concerns about work environment. Liz Gilbert, the president of the host committee, Adam Alonzo, she has no direct contact with staff anymore. Adam Alonzo, the chief of staff of the group, has been placed on administrative league leave. The accused uh, uh, officials, Gilbert and Alonzo, uh, their, their accusations include giving contracts to their friends in New Jersey, Calling meetings and then failing to attend them, being more focused on accumulating power than promoting Milwaukee. Uh, this, by the way, the assertions come at the same time. Alonzo, the chief of staff, is being accused in New Jersey of shaking down campaign contributors for his personal consulting business. So he just uh, brought his act to Milwaukee. Allegedly, it's one of the worst, if not the worst, I have worked on. Said one official of the convention host committee. A second official said they would become sick to their stomach when working with the host committee the first time they've experienced a toxic work environment despite working on numerous campaigns. Boy, oh boy, 2020 is really uh, firing out of the gate for Democrats. For more on these assorted topics, we're pleased to be joined by Josh Hammer, editor-at-large of the Daily Wire of Council at First Liberty Institute and contributor to the New York Post. He has uh, written about his exasperation with impeachment as well in the Post. Josh, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Happy to be here. So um, it's uh, the uh, impeachment uh, proceeding in the Senate, uh, which moves to acquittal tomorrow. Uh, You say in your piece in the Post, more than a waste of time. That is far too charitable. More. This is more than just about uh, lackluster television ratings and and an uninterested public. This is uh, about precedent setting that and, and there should be a reckoning for the precedents that, be, that are being set. Yeah, I think that is exactly what I said. That's a good summation. And, you know, look, at a bare minimum, we knew that, that this entire ordeal was indeed a waste of time. OK, as a as a function of sheer mathematics, of sheer arithmetic, the same arithmetic that the Iowa State Democratic Party seems incapable of doing. Uh, we, we all knew beforehand that the Democrats lacked a majority, let alone the two thirds needed for conviction in the Senate. So this acquittal was foreordained. It was set in stone 
from the very outcome, which made the entire Nancy Pelosi delay of the transmission of the articles and all the other various stunts and gambits that they've attempted, have, it's made it all silly. But you're right, it, it, it is worse than a waste of time because America is at a historically low point right now in terms of the American people's trust in their core institutions. The, the military is a slight exception. A majority of Americans, I believe, still poll, thank goodness, in favor of our men and women in uniform, but pretty much every other major institution across the country, be it religious institutions, the media, and then, of course, our political institutions and Congress. I think Congress's approval rating is like four or five percent. I mean, and that was before this thing started. And we're already obviously terribly divided in terms of partisan tribalism within our various parties and um, the cable news numbers we watch. We, We are increasingly just living in two different Americas. And to impeach on a five-page transcript of a phone call over what amounts to a policy disagreement over how the president conducted his phone call is just a disastrous overplaying of the Democrats' hands here. And I, I really do think that it's going to redound to Republicans' interests come November in terms of the ballot box. There's a new documentary out about Clarence Thomas, Created Equal, and uh, you know we forget uh, the particulars of the saga of his confirmation hearing, but. Uh, the Democrats uh, Kavanaugh Clarence Thomas before they Kavanaugh Kavanaugh. That's three decades earlier. And then so they continue uh, from the same playbook because even when they lose, they win, don't they? And they get another bite at the apple and another bite at the apple. And there's more give and there's more give. Uh, Clarence Thomas, for people who forget, uh, this was uh, uh, the, the whole Anita Hill testimony was the result of leaking closed door testimony, which was a crime, closed door testimony from Anita Hill, that the Senate Judiciary Committee deadlocked on whether or not to make public. So it wasn't to be made public. It was leaked ostensibly by one of the Senate Democrats or their staff. And then the whole Anita Hill public spectacle ensued. And the the uppity lynching uh, or the lynching of an uppity black man, as Clarence Thomas declared, having to fight for his own life and save his nomination, which, of course, he did. But but that that's in the early 90s. And so Kavanaugh uh, last year, and so Trump impeachment this year, over and over and over again. That's exactly right. Um, if anything, it actually didn't even start with Clarence Thomas. That was 1991, but it really started four years earlier with, with the with with the vicious smear campaign of, of exactly of Bob Bork from Ted Kennedy and Joe Biden were really the two ring ring leaders of that circus. You know, really, if you look back at the history of Supreme Court nominations, the this is the historical consensus and it's consensus because I think it's basically accurate. It was the Bork nomination that was the turning point because one year prior in 1986 was when Reagan tapped Antonin Scalia to the court, and Scalia was confirmed by an overwhelming margin. He had like over 90, maybe even 95 votes. I don't remember the exact tally. So then a year later, Ted Kennedy and Joe Biden decided to pull off all the stunts about, quote unquote, Bob Bork's America and like the back alley abortions and all this other various forms of fear mongering. So the two sides really are not equal in terms of their treatment of the other party's high court nominees. I mean, sure, conservatives and Republicans oppose uh, nom- then nominees, Elena Kagan and Sonia Sotomayor, but they did not do these sort of vicious, ad hominem, personal, biographical campaigns to destroy the life of an individual. That is just, it is, it, it, it is vile tactics. Um, and you know, it, it, the Kavanaugh conference nomination for me was – I view that as a civilizational wake-up call. Um, they, they threw out 5,000 years, from my perspective, of basic, innocent, proven guilty civilizational norms. And 
you know, what's happening here is it's not 5,000 years of recklessness, but it is at least 150 years of recklessness to the last impeachment that I think was as dangerous for the republic. And it's interesting, too, as much time, I mean, I mean the, you know, the sort of uh, reading of tea leaves with these surveys, you know, I mean, Supermajority of Americans won witnesses. A super major- or a majority of Americans think Trump did something wrong in the call with Zelensky. But by the same token, there's a Zogby poll out yesterday. Trump's approval rating now eclipsing 50 percent uh, is at 51 percent in the Zogby survey. Uh, and Zogby notes that he has rebounded with independents, women, suburban voters and suburban win- women to get over 50 percent. And, and so, uh, you know, this is sort of, I, I guess, a reflection a bit of the muddled mind of of uh, American voters because the D.C. press corps pounds one message and then, you know, you you you, know, you intermittently watch what's actually going on and you're looking at it a bit of scan saying, well, wait a second. That doesn't sound like exactly what I'm being told is happening. Yeah, no, I, 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 I think that's also well said. Uh, I mean, if you look at the real fair politics average, Trump's approval rating, if anything, and, you know, I, I, I try my best to work with averages because there always, there, there always are going to be some some one-off polls. Mm-hmm. But the, in his approval rating in the, in the real fair politics average, which I've been tracking on, uh, on at least a weekly basis for our site, The Daily Wire, if anything, it's inched up over this impeachment affair. I, it, it certainly has not gone down. Um, and there's some decent evidence that it's inched up. He's I, I, I haven't looked today yet, but he's been polling right around 45 to 46 percent or so, if I recall, in the real clear politics average. And, you know, the reality is that just like in 2016, Republicans actually do not win, need to win the national popular vote in order to secure an electoral college majority. And Henry Olson, who actually, like me, went to uh, UFC right there in Chicago for law school, really, really smart guy. He's a fellow of the Ethics and Public Policy Center and writes a freaking column for The Washington Post. He's kind of a uh, polling horse race junkie, and he, he, he did some math, and I thought this really nice piece back in November, and showed that in order for the president to feel secure about his reelection chances, he really only needs to hit like 46.5 to 47 percent as far as job approval rating, which is historically low, right? Historically speaking, most presidents have not felt great about reelection if their approval rating on election day is under 50 percent. But... The Electoral College map is such that, and Trump's unique political figure is such that most historical trends are oftentimes inapplicable to the current president. So he's really not that far off right now. Um, and as you know, if you're seeing polls where his approval rating is 50 percent, then he is. I would I, I would feel pretty good. I mean, it's hardly a given, obviously, because those Rust Belt states, Wisconsin, Michigan, you got to fight for every vote in those states still, but. Um, I would I would feel pretty good right now, especially after that dumpster fire last night in Iowa. It's hard not to feel good if you're the Trump campaign today. He is Josh Hammer, editor-at-large of The Daily Wire of Council at First Liberty Institute and contributor to The New York Post. Josh, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. You see, I've been through the desert on a horse with no name. It felt good to be out of the rain. In the desert, you can't remember your Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. A couple weeks back, we tackled this piece by Richard Freeman in the New York Times about uh, youth suicide. 
now the second leading cause of death among young people. The answers aren't easy. And so I was uh, moved by this report by uh, ABC7 here in Chicago the other week about Gabriel Dealey. This is a, a young man who was 12 years old. He was going to St. Clement's School in Lincoln Park, and he committed suicide. In dealing with that unimaginable grief, his parents started a nonprofit called Gabriel's Light, advocating for a number of things to do in furtherance of suicide prevention, particularly in schools and particularly with young people in those schools. And we wanted to have, since Carol was willing to talk about it with ABC7, we thought we'd get her on the show and uh, give her a platform to talk about this a little bit more with us. We're pleased to be joined by Carol Dealey, mom of Gabriel and founder of Gabriel's Light. Carol, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me this morning. So with respect to um, the particular circumstances surrounding your son's death, prompting you to found this nonprofit that's in the business of suicide prevention, give us your handle, the angle of instance you, your family, your organization is taking to Mm -hmm. try and deal with suicide prevention. When we are a very involved family, very close, loving, faith-filled family, and we could not have been more shocked and devastated by this action that our son took, dying by suicide. And it took some time for us to come out of the fog of that and the shock. But when we did, and when we started searching for answers about why, we just felt that we needed to share it with other parents and other families and schools so that they could learn from what we learned and hopefully make a difference in someone else's life. Our mission is of Gabriel's Light is threefold based on the things that we found. We found that he had searched suicide and bullying on his device at school. We found that he had verbalized and had written warning signs of suicide to his peers at school, and they didn't know how to handle it, so it wasn't reported. We found signs that he felt hopeless, and we felt that he had felt that he had been bullied or diminished. He felt he was alone. So all three of these pillars helped us form what we are calling Gabriel's Light to work with schools and families to share that. One of the things that uh, Gabriel's Light advocates for, I understand from the reporting on this, is a home and mm-hmm. school device monitoring so that you know parents, uh, school authorities, friends can uh, pick up on sort of posting the messaging that you're describing your son was doing? That's correct. Since 2015, there have been keyword alert monitoring software and apps on the market. And manual monitoring is ineffective. So I was doing manual monitoring and I thought, well, I I could keep on top of things. I used some other apps as well, but I never knew about keyword search alerts. And kids in most schools have firewalls to try to keep information or dangerous information from children in schools. Mm -hmm. I mean, most schools do that. It's mandated. But kids know how to circumvent the firewalls. They see it as a challenge. Kids know that. That's why they do it at school. I mean, at my house, I had pretty strict controls on the devices. But What's really what people don't know about are these keyword search alerts so that you can establish things that you want to want to receive alerts on based on their age. You can choose how many alerts you want to receive and how how much information you want to get. But it allows you to to really have an idea of kind of what's going on in their online life, which many parents really don't know about, you know, Kids have their own online life, just like adults do. Can you describe in general the sort of um, what, you know, what was uh, feeding his his, uh, sense of loneliness?
loneliness and isolation? What what kind of uh, what we what he was being subject to by other students or whoever? We um, don't really have specifics as far as the why. I don't know that we'll ever know why. But there's just indications in what he wrote. He wrote in a notebook that day about it was all things about peers and whatever. You know, seventh grade. It's a set set time of kids' lives that you know their peers are so important and. Well, we don't think that we will ever know. That's why we wanted that iPad to get more information, and hopefully we'll still get that iPad. He, We don't have any specific examples. You know, there's all these little things, but there's all sorts of things that happen to people every day, and they still don't take this action. What we've been told by therapists is that a majority of children think about at some point about suicide, but the majority of them do not act on it. And so why he did we don't know. He was impulsive. He had ADHD. He had no other diagnosed mental health issues. We don't know. The thing that's uh, frightening about this is exactly just how mysterious suicide can be. And this is what you're describing. We've tried to talk about this before, too. You think that it's just so, so sort of, you know, one plus one equals two or there's a there's an obvious indicator. And um uh, and, and what you're describing, sort of, you know, the mystery of the human mind and the human emotional system, uh, what somebody, how somebody receives something, or how somebody's thinking about something that occurred to them, or they wish would occur to them, and um, and, and and you know, it's that, that that's the thing that's really scary is just how much of this is unknown, how much of this is is inexplicable. Exactly. One of the things that we now know because you know we've searched, we've gotten lots of counseling and searched about suicide and the suicidal mind. The thing with youth today is that suicide is very normalized. Um, kids talk about, you know, there was 13 reasons why there is a program, uh, Suicide Squad. There's, uh, you know, kids run those ladders in sports and they're called suicides. It's, it's normalized. How important is it to be proactive, do you think, in, the com- in, in having a conversation about adversity in life? About, you know, no matter, you, you know, there's only so much mom and dad can do to protect you, to to uh, to clear the path for you in life. And there are going to be moments where you're not treated fairly and there are going to be moments where you feel alone and you're not alone. And uh, you'll you're, you're going to have the tools to get through whatever life throws your way. You know, just sort of that conversation to give people um, a sense that they are resilient. Well, that's a, a very good point, because resilience is something that uh, really needs to to be reinforced. But first, the person, they need to be heard. If they're hurting, that type of conversation is maybe not going to resonate as as well as find out if if you see something. Like our son did have one crying spell that he was upset with himself about spilling something. And then we found out, well, at school, he had a similar one and he was crying. So but we, you know, we didn't have put two and two together. In addition, if you think you spill something, you don't think you're going to, you know, take your life. But it's really important to validate whatever your child is expressing to you, and trying to teach resilience at the same time. But they do need to be heard. They do need to understand that you are there to listen, and you, and you're there to help them and support them, and you can you can model resilience and kindness. And things like that, parents and adults can by their behavior. She is Carol Dealey. She is uh, Gabriel's mom and the founder of Gabriel's Light. Carol, where can people get more information about Gabriel's Light? Do you have a website set up or anything? Yes, we do. It's uh, gabrielslight.org. Gabrielslight.org is the organization. 
Carol Dealey, thank you so much for joining us, and good luck with your work. We appreciate your time. Thank you very much. You can't go on thinking nothing's wrong. Listening to the Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. And just when you think central planning is about to work, as the woke walkers and their previous iterations did. In the 80s and during the Cold War, the Soviet Union was going to put uh, America on the ash heap of history. And before that, it was Fidel Castro's uh, wondrous miracle in Cuba. And after the Soviet Union, it was uh, Japan's corporatist model. And uh, then it was uh, the EU. And then it was China. Central planning is just about to work right before it all comes apart. And uh, our friend Victor Davis Hansen has a good piece on this topic and uh, the woke walkers selective condemnation writing virtue signaling is increasingly common. Western elites often harangue about misdemeanors when they cannot address felonies, harangue about misdemeanors when they cannot address felonies. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by VDH senior fellow in military history at the Hoover Institution at Stanford, Professor Emeritus of Classics at California State University and the author of more than two dozen books, including most recently The Case for Trump. Victor Davis Hanson, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. So what is that? Uh, what, what are you uh, getting to when you say Western elites often harangue about misdemeanors when they cannot address felonies? Well, they want to feel like they're doing something, but the something that matters is something they either cannot for ideological reasons address or or they're not able to come up with a solution. Homelessness in San Francisco is a good example. It's contrary. The idea of getting people off the street is contrary to the progressive agenda. And even if it weren't, they don't know where to put them or what to do. And so in compensation, psychological or maybe moral compensation, they ban water bottles at SFO. And then they tell everybody they're saving the planet, why there's disease and, you know, dangers of cholera, tuberculosis, or typhus on the streets next to luxury hotels. So, and that was, I think I coined the term, the Bloomberg effect. You remember about 10 years ago when the snow could not be removed from New York after sort of a freak winter storm, Michael Bloomberg went on TV the next day talking about banning supersized Coca-Cola and soft drinks. And I think that's sort of where we are now on the progressive side that their solutions just don't address these existential problems. So they try to find ways of assuaging that incompetence or impotence or square that circle between their dreams and reality. And and then the, the other piece of this sort of, uh, as I was alluding to, is uh, the latest uh, uh, central planned country or regime that uh, has bubbled to the surface is uh, the wondrous uh, economic miracle, the the way forward, and we embrace them until they collapse under their own weight, and then we move on to the next one. I mean, it was just 
like four or five years ago, you had uh, left-wing op-ed writers talking about the economic miracle in Venezuela. Yeah, they did. They did. I remember Thomas Friedman wrote almost monthly that we need to learn from the Chinese about high-speed rail, gleaming airports, never discussing property rights or eminent domain or exploitation of workers, much less the internal surveillance and the gulag. And again, that's an agenda of the left that even though they're affluent and they're free, they interpret that leisure and luxury and bounty as sort of a, a mechanism or an empowerment to dream of a, an antithetical system. And they always do it from the Upper West Side or Madison or Cambridge <laughs> or Palo Alto. And then they, they fixate on, as, as you said, I wrote, China. And then before China was really the EU was the model. And then it was Japan Incorporated. And then it was the Soviet Union and um Anything but the very system by which they thrive and by which under no circumstances they want to leave. And, and, and there's a, a recent book from uh, Robert Curry over at the Claremont Institute, Reclaiming Common Sense, which is a follow up to a previous book he wrote about common sense. And he, he actually traces the philosophical foundation of common sense realism in our country back to Thomas Reed. And uh, Donald Trump may never have read Thomas Reed. He may not know that uh, this is what he's doing. But isn't that essentially what the appeal of Trump has been, the idea that he is a solutionist, not an ideologue? He's sort of reclaiming common sense, calling things what they are and discussing things how they are in in furtherance of actually uh, uh, trying to affect some positive change. Yes, I think that's right, actually. I think that's a really good observation. And what he has, I don't mean it's a derogatory term, but he has an animal cunning. He understands the way human nature works, and he understands that ratings matter and that people who look good on TV, people will gravitate to. And he understands that if you're winning or you're successful or you have low unemployment, then people gravitate toward you. And it's kind of a brutal way of looking at the world, but it's He understands that humans gravitate toward winning. They gravitate toward rewards. They want to feel honored. They want to feel important. And the opposite is true as well. When we come back, I want to talk a little bit more about common sense realism with respect to particular virtues. We'll have more with VDH right after this. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. We're back on the Dan Prof Show with Victor Davis Hanson, Senior Fellow in Military History at the Hoover Institution at Stanford, Professor Emeritus of Classics at California State University of Fresno, the author of more than two dozen books, including most recently The Case for Trump and uh, VDH. We were talking about sort of common sense realism, and you were describing President Trump's animal cunning as you describe as you uh, detailed it. I just wanted to go to something about uh, common virtues, too, when we talk about common sense realism. It's not just calling things what they are. It's also saying what works. And uh, it just, it's just been a few weeks since Gertrude Himmelfar passed away, the great historian and, uh, and, and Victorian. And she um, one of the things that she wrote about and uh, one of her perhaps most oft quoted uh, passages, hard work, sobriety, frugality, foresight. These were modest, mundane virtues, even lowly ones, but they were virtues within the capacity of everyone. They did not assume any special breeding or status or talent or valor or grace or even money. They were common virtues within the reach of common people. And I just wanted to get your your take on those common virtues 
of which Himmelfarb wrote compared to the virtue signaling that you wrote about recently? I think the difference is those were transcendent virtues. So identity politics were irrelevant. Irrelevant. And by that, I mean, whether you're black or white or gay or straight or old or young, we know that you will succeed if you follow basically or you play within certain parameters. You work hard, you, you're thrifty, you try to support your family, you look askance at dependency, and that's what she was talking about. In a society that inculcates those virtues, then it works better. And that, that working better is a humane thing in itself. And I think Trump, when he says, I got unemployment down to 3.5, he's not just talking about an abstract number. What he's talking about is six or seven million people. I see them here in Fresno County from where I'm speaking or in the inner city that now have a job. And that means they're eight hours away from what they were doing before they had a job. And sometimes what that w- they were doing was not conducive to society. And they feel honor and they feel self-respect. And then that magnifies and grows. And so that's a moral act. But we don't get any credit. We say, well, you know, he's crude on his tweets. He's amoral. But how amoral is it to have stagnant wage growth for 10 years. That's what we have. That's a moral and amoral act in some ways, even if it wasn't deliberate. And so I think common sense says, just look what he's done and see how it's changed lives and then assess the morality and not what he says he's going to do. In fact, people who do things that are either amoral or they're not moral, they often talk in a way that suggests that what they're doing is good and that's duplicitous and that's not moral in itself when obama praised uh obamacare the affordable care act and then people lost their doctor they lost their plan their premiums that was not a very moral thing to do even though jonathan gruber and everybody told us it was you know they kind of laughed about how they sold it to us and i think that's the biggest problem we have in america that we have this therapeutic culture where we have these artificial banners of morality, but they disguise things that are pretty amoral. And and interestingly, there's a lot of, I mean, I, I, you wrote you wrote recently about the Never Trumpers and, and sort of their over, uh, the, the over extrapolation of their presence because of the amplification on certain cable news shows. But 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 there's a lot of uh, erstwhile conservatives like the Jonah Goldbergs of the world that would certainly uh, echo your sentiments on those uh, values, virtues that Gertrude Himmelfarb wrote about, and yet they can't seem to, to find their way clear of what you're describing Trump presents. One of those who had a conversion experience, and I'm not talking about to uh, evangelical Christianity, but Eric Erickson, uh, evangelical Christian leader and, and radio talk show host, he, he wrote uh, this week about uh, the week that was and all the punditry about the impeachment trial. And he basically, well, I'll just quote him. No, we're not a monarchy now. No, the Constitution is not in shambles. No, the president is not a dictator. No, the Confederacy is not complicit in protecting the president. Y'all are a bunch of insane clowns is what you all are. This hysteria is just too much and too insane. The GOP needs to be burned down because it refused to toss the guy you didn't vote for, toss out the guy you didn't vote for. The Constitution no longer has any weight, merit, or meaning because you lost a political fight. And he's speaking to, yes, those on the left, but he's also speaking to never Trumpers who are echoing some of those same sentiments. And I I just wonder why there are um, otherwise intelligent people, thoughtful conservatives that are still so resistant to just uh, the common sense realism of an Eric Erickson, at least that what he came to uh, throughout the course of the last three years of Trump's presidency. I, I think there's two or three reasons. And, of course, you're right. Issues that they supported their entire lives 
whether it's moving the embassy to uh, tel- uh, from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, or whether it was opening up Anwar or more gas and oil fracking or whatever it is, they got under Trump in a way they didn't really get under George W. Bush. I'm not even getting into the social agendas of conservative justices and stuff. So why are they opposed it? And it's because Trump has his fingerprints on these policies. And why do they oppose Trump so zealously? I think it's two things. Initially, it started out culturally that he was this Queen's accent, his his hair, his girth, his fake tan, whatever it was about him, they found off-putting to their idea of a sober and judicious Bush type of politician or Romney, the way Romney looked and acted, they thought was emblematic of what Republicans should convey country club look, I suppose. And then it was his Trump is coarse and crude. He's a product of the Manhattan real estate market where you have to deal with crooked unions, crooked environmental groups, crooked politicians, crooked activists. And that's true. But then when they got into this cycle, they kept predicting he would not get the nomination. He would not win. If he did win, he would fail. If he didn't fail, he would eventually be in P. All that turned out to be false, and their egos were online. I mean, they were on the line. They just kept digging in as if it was an eggshell, and they were cracking at invisible fissures. And if they just kept at it at the final op-ed, the final podcast would blow up Trump, and they can say, see, I was right all along. I predicted this. And so they ended up sort of pathetic as Trump had a greater unification of the Republican Party than any recent president, 91, 92% of Republicans. And, and that's a that's the enlightened view. If you're going to be more cynical and you say that their worlds involved speaking engagements, uh, circulation for syndicated columns, book advances, uh, consultations with the president, trips to the White House all of which was pretty common before Trump came, and he blew up their world. Very interesting. As always, Victor Davis Hanson, Senior Fellow of Military History at the Hoover Institution at Stanford, Professor Emeritus of Classics at California State University, Fresno, and pick up uh, all of his books, including his most recent, The Case for Trump. VDH, thanks as always for joining us on The Dan Prof Show. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Take care. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Well, we've got the uh, trial of the human stain ongoing in New York before he's put on trial for similar sex crimes in L.A. Talking about Harvey Weinstein, of course, and there's all this talk of golden showers and deformed private parts. Ugh. But uh, it points up the larger issue of the Me Too movement. And it goes back to the conversations that we had at the height of it. You must believe the accuser. Well, how about uh, you take allegations seriously, take serious allegations seriously, and then you follow a due process protocol? Because when you don't, you wrongly accuse people. And so this audio that's come out, a conversation between uh, Hollywood star Johnny Depp and his ex-wife, also Hollywood star Amber Heard. You may remember her from such recent movies as Aquaman. Uh, Johnny Depp was accused of being a wife beater during his divorce proceedings when Amber Heard said she was the the victim of physical violence. BuzzFeed published photos of her with bruises, accusations of abuse against Depp. He was uh, implicated, you know, tarred and feathered by the Me Too movement, branded a wife abuser, dropped from the Pirates of the Caribbean franchise in 2018 and 
course, amid a lot of speculation, was because of Amber Heard's allegations. And now, listen to what Amber Heard admits, excited utterances, albeit, but uh, admits nonetheless in this uh, argument with Depp that has been posted online. After you got physically violent with me, I texted Travis, I said, come up here. Travis to the rescue. No, that, no, that was the last one. You can go. Uh, you can go. You you called me a liar, and yet you, yet. I watched you lie. You called me a liar. I watched you lie. I You're, heard it. I was right there. There's not what you still haven't told me what lie it is. We'll talk but yet to, every single fucking time. We'll talk you know to you Travis. do this every single fucking time. We'll talk time. to Travis. I'm not fucking talking to nobody. No. Nah, no you fucking, go fucking jerk. Blush. Go jerk him off. I don't care. I really could care less. It's you Let's every mouth. single time. You latch onto some sort of thing. When I already told you, I don't know what you're fucking talking about. You don't even know what you're talking about. You still haven't even told me what it is, but run with it. You I have told you what it is. No, you haven't. I said to Travis, I said, Good. no, I said to you, hey, okay. tell Travis right. what just happened. You oh, can you told me to do it. You yeah. told me to. You said, go do that. I said, no, tell, tell him what just happened. And I lied. And that you punched me in the fucking thing and you, you in the face. Out. And you said, no, no, I didn't. What the f*** are you talking about? And I, I watched you lie. You. And then I, I didn't s- punch you, and by the I... way. You, I'm sorry that I didn't uh, you, uh, uh, hit you me. across the face in a proper slap, but I was hitting you. It was not punching you. Babe, you're not punched. Don't tell me what it feels like to be punched. You, you know, even a lot of fights have been around a long time. I don't know. Yeah, no, when you f***ing have a closed fist. You get punched. You got hit. I'm sorry I hit you like this, but I did not punch you. I did not f***ing deck you. I f***ing was hitting you. you Baby, because you, the f- Because you started physical fights? I did start a physical fight. Yeah, you did, so I had because- to get the f- out. And I can't promise I won't get physical again, Amber Heard goes on to say. So now what's trending on Twitter? Amber Heard is an abuser, hashtag. Hashtag justice for Johnny. Oh, the mob uh, feels guilty about the rush to judgment, so they're going to rush headlong in the other way. How about this? How about keeping it simple? How about engaging, engaging in some common sense realism? Take serious charges seriously and follow a due, pro- due process protocol to get to the truth rather than the tar and feathering approach of the blue check mob on Twitter. This is the Dan Prof Show. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Prof Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Uh, President Trump is uh, just wrapping up his State of the Union address with some of the uh, soaring rhetoric you expect a president to give as he concludes... uh, a speech that's, uh, well, you know, about an hour and 20 minutes long uh, plus. And there have been some moments, and there was uh, just an incredible moment. We'll have the audio for you shortly uh, with President Trump uh, reuniting Sergeant First Class Townsend Williams, who he described as in Afghanistan on his fourth deployment to the, mid, uh, to the Middle East. Kids have not seen their father's face in, in many months. He's addressing his... Um, his wife, Amy Williams, their two children, six-year-old Eliana, three-year-old Rowan, Rowan excuse me, and, um, and then this happened. Tonight, we have a very special surprise. I am thrilled to inform you that your husband is back from deployment. He is here with us tonight, and we couldn't keep him waiting any longer.
that's uh, that's quite a moment. I, I mean, there was a number of really poignant emotional moments that punctuated President Trump's speech. Uh, uh, you know, there's always some theater in the State of the Union addresses. Perhaps uh, this is going to be one of the more memorable ones, not just the soldier literally being reunited in that way you see normally on like, a, I don't know, a, a, at a sporting event or a daytime talk show, but uh, also uh, Melania conferring the Presidential Medal of Freedom on Rush Limbaugh uh, in the in the gallery. Uh, that was a moment. Uh, the pr- president recognizing uh, Kayla Muller, who was an aid worker killed in Syria, uh, describing how the military named their mission to take out Bal- uh, al-Baghdadi, the ISIS terrorist leader, Task Force 814, which was a special uh, which was a reference to uh, Kayla Kayla Muller's birthday, August 14th. And then her father stands up with a picture of his daughter who was killed in Syria. Um, uh, uh, all of the, 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 the top notes were hit in terms of policy and policy areas. But I think uh, this speech is going to be remembered for two things. Those moments, which uh, are just indelible moments, number one. Number two... President Trump resisted the temptation, resisted the temptation to engage in sort of the petty partisan politics of the beltway that he's so has been subjected to. He rose above it. What's one of the uh, criticisms, even from Trump supporters from time to time, myself included, you don't always need to punch down. In fact, you should resist the temptation to punch down. You're the president of the United States. Don't punch down. Punch up. Uh, with the focus on American, the interest of the American people, not uh, going tit for tat with uh, lesser political figures and uh, really idiosyncratic and uh, sort of venal conversations or debates or, uh, you know, back and forth ad hominem. And uh, he didn't do that tonight. You know, it could have been very easy. I, I, I tweeted out right at the start of the speech. Here's what I wanted him to open. And this is a joke, but I think this was indicative of the attitude after the last three years and even just the last three weeks. The first thing I wanted President Trump to do was direct the sergeant of arms to take Adam Schiff into custody. <laughs> but, but he didn't do that. He didn't make a reference to impeachment with his acquittal happening tomorrow. He didn't make a reference to the catastrophic administration of the Iowa caucus on the Democrat side yesterday. And uh, he rose above it. And just as the president's concluding, now you see behind him Nancy Pelosi in uh, a a suit, I assume from is the the Tulsi Gabbard collection, rip up the speech she was reading from Rita, rip up his speech as uh, he just finished delivering it and uh, is now exiting the gallery. Uh, yeah, exiting the uh, the the chamber. Uh, so you know who is uh, small and angry and self-regarding, and who had a discussion tonight about the future of this country from the perspective of the interests of the people of this country, the people not in that chamber. Uh, President Trump. I mean, he went right down the list. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I mean, it started with sort of the, uh, Cliff's notes, Cliff notes summary of the last three years of the Trump administration. Three years ago, we launched the great American comeback. 
Tonight, I stand before you to share the incredible results. Jobs are booming, incomes are soaring, poverty is plummeting, crime is falling, confidence is surging, and our country is thriving and highly respected again. Uh, it was very uh, optimistic at the beginning, optimistic at the end. Uh, there was certainly a recitation of what he believes his accomplishments are and uh, what he believes his commitments have been and will continue to be on a range of issues, particularly in the area of security, both domestic and, and, and national in scope. He went on after that uh, bite to say the years of economic decay are over. The days of our country being used, taken advantage of, even scorned by other nations are long behind us. Gone, too, are the broken promises, jobless recoveries, tired platitudes, and constant excuses for the depletion of American wealth, power, and prestige. The hate America first crowd, they're out of favor. And it really uh, reminded me of something that struck me about President Trump when he was running as candidate Trump in 2016. For uh, all of the uh, sort of shocking at times uh, nature of some of his rhetorical choices on the campaign trail, there was something about him that projected strength. Proud to be an American, loves the country, wants America to be strong, and he is willing to throw the haymakers and take the haymakers in furtherance of that direction for this country. And uh, I just it was something that I hadn't thought about in a long time. Trump, the candidate. But the way he began that speech and the uh, way he treated one topic after the other, from the blue collar boom to energy and manufacturing to trade deals to school choice to restating. We're putting America first in this administration to uh, the difference between being a U.S. citizen and being a person here illegally as it uh, relates to taxpayer-funded benefits, to uh, the matters of uh, al-Baghdadi and Soleimani erasing them from this planet throughout projecting American strength and putting America first. Not a navel-gazing speech that was about him. It's about what his administration said they would do, what his administration has done, the commitments they took seriously and continue to take seriously and prospectively what a Trump administration means for this country in 2020 and beyond. This is the Dan Proc show. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Prof Show. You are fake news. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Uh, Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer is giving the uh, Democrat response to President Trump's speech. But let me tell you something. Uh, no matter what she does, it's not going to be good enough. It's not going to be good enough to effectively combat what the president had to say. It's not going to be good enough to remove the stain that I tell I'm telling you will be part of tomorrow's news coverage. Certainly our conversation. Nancy Pelosi ripping up the president's speech in a bit of a snit right after he completed it. And as he was uh, exiting 
from the uh, dais to exit the chamber. Uh, that tells you how good the president was tonight. He was the adult in the chamber, and uh, he's continuing to win. Didn't live down to expectations about taking shots at uh, his political opponents. Focused on the policies that impact Americans' quality of life. Focused on heroic Americans telling their stories. Focused on those topic areas where he has effectively jujitsued the Democrats from school choice to criminal justice reform. Uh, I thought it was uh, as good as I've seen President Trump. For more on this topic, we're pleased to be joined by Charles Lipson. He is a University of Chicago professor of political science emeritus and contributor to RealClearPolitics.com. Charles, thanks so much for joining us on the Dan Prof Show. Appreciate it. Thanks, Dan. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. Yes. Yeah, so, um, but I know you've uh, written a piece on the Iowa caucus, and we certainly want to get to that. But, but first, I wanted to get your reviews of uh, the president's State of the Union address. I thought it was excellent. Uh, it did exactly what uh, a president wants to do, which is he wants to go through a set of accomplishments, lay out some ideas about what direction he wants to move. And ever since Reagan introduced the idea of sort of human human uh, representatives of all of his policies or things he wants to do, I thought that this integrated them in better than I've ever seen that uh, done. I thought that the uh, the moment with Rush Limbaugh where he uh, presented him with the Medal of Freedom right there and had uh, Melania pin it on him was was very touching. And then the idea of bringing the husband home from deployment oh, yeah. uh, was just spectacular, wasn't it? I mean, you're, you're right. I, it was my first reaction to the, those dramatic, poignant moments. And, and frankly, the obviously bringing the soldier home, unbeknownst to his family that was assembled in the gallery, that's one thing. But uh, the rush thing is, uh, boy, that's really sticking it down the throats of Democrats, too. I'm, I think it's deserved. I think it was great. But it, it, it's one of the reasons why I think Trump has such loyalty is that he will not be cowered by people who don't like him. He, he will not trade in old friends for old enemies. He just won't do it. And so this you is are so right. This is you my so friend. Right. This is I my wanna, friend. I want to mention one other moment because I thought it was really uh, interesting in its own right. And I want to uh, say one or two things about it politically. I thought that that thing where they had the young boy stand up who wants to be in the space force. And then his great grandfather beside him who just turned a hundred and they pinned uh, a Brigadier General's medal on today, the Tuskegee yeah, Airman. Yeah. That was fabulous. But I'll tell you, it has a, a political meaning, too. Um, and you saw it in Trump's um, ads in the uh, Super Bowl. He is not conceding the black vote to the Democrats. He doesn't have to win a lot of it to make a huge difference electorally. And he is going straight at it. And I must say that in addition to trying to win black voters directly, I think that that's also a it undercuts the uh, Democrats' constant uh, cry that he's uh, a racist, uh, a white nationalist and all the rest. So I think that he's 
that 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 sort of thing actually appeals to suburban uh, moms and the like. So it it's a very smart play I think they're making. Yeah, no, I thought uh, that was something. You think this is all about uh, youth, and he wants to grow up and be the space force. And wait, wait for it, <laughs> wait for it. That's not the kicker. The kicker is his hundred-year-old grandfather or great-grandfather, right. who's a Tuskegee Airman of all things. I mean, wild. But the other thing, I mean, just generally throughout the speech, yeah. the optimism of President right. Trump, who often can get down into the mud. I thought just a, a, the tone was spot on, but. I want to pick up our conversation on the State of the Union and uh, rope in a conversation about the Iowa caucus results if we ever get a complete version of them. We're talking to Charles Lipson, University of Chicago poli-sci professor emeritus. We'll be back with more on The Dan Prop Show. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. We're talking to... uh, Charles Lipson, he is a University of Chicago poli-sci professor emeritus, also a contributor to RealClearPolitics.com, among other outlets. And, uh, Charles, just uh, closing out the State of the Union before we have a little discussion about the Iowa caucus and the, the larger Democrat race for the presidential nomination. Uh, you know, I, look, I know there's been a lot of heartbreak for Nancy Pelosi over the last 48 hours with Pat Mahomes first and now Trump's acquittal second. But uh, <laughs> uh, the the pettiness of her ripping up that speech right as he finished right as President Trump had completed his State of the Union address and was departing the chamber, that, that that's going to be an indelible moment. And, uh, you know, it's a remarkable thing to say since uh, per the perception of Trump's antics sometimes, but he was the adult in the chamber tonight. Well, uh, on her side of things, I would say he didn't shake her hand. She extended it when he first uh, gave her the speech. So those will be the bookends. I imagine most mm. news outlets would play the two things together, wouldn't you? Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Yeah, that's right. I, I didn't see that. I heard that I was in transit. I did hear it, though. Um, so it that... didn't look as bad as it sounds. He uh, he turns around from the podium and he gives a bound copy of the speech or uh, uh, in folders or something to eat to the vice president and to Pelosi, and she sort of sticks out her hands, but he doesn't shake it, both, I'm sure, because of the impeachment. But last year when she did that clap thing that was designed to mock him, right. he, he couldn't have liked that. Mm. Maybe he had given her a copy rather than of the State of the Union speech of recent Trump polling. And that was what really <laughs> upset her. Boy, that's looking better for him, isn't it? Well, and let's talk about that a little bit, starting with uh, the Iowa caucus and, uh, of course, the press conference this afternoon with the, uh, uh, the, the with uh, Troy Price, the head of the Iowa Democratic Party, saying, you know, this was unacceptable. And it's still unacceptable because we only have 62 percent of the precincts to report. Um, but uh I mean, just your your takeaway from how damaging uh, the Iowa the administration of the Iowa caucus for the Democrats is. Uh, I posted earlier today that uh, Adam Schiff, who had talked on uh, the uh, House floor about uh, about how uh, if we acquit uh, Trump in this impeachment, he could sell uh, Alaska to, yeah. to Russia. Yeah. I, I posted that he might be thinking maybe now they could just sell Iowa. <laughs> but I mean, um, 
Go, no, look, go ahead. This, this is very costly to the Democrats, and it's not a one-day thing. And let me explain why. First, it makes the party look completely ridiculous. There'll never be another Iowa caucus, right? Uh, it certainly won't be first in the nation. They'll pay a price for this. But the, the, the thing to remember is that the Democratic Party is the party of government. It's the party that reflexively, when it sees a problem, says this is something that with the right government program, we could solve it. We need to get the right laws. We need to pass the right regulations. We need to set up a bureaucracy. That's how we're going to solve the problem. When you can't count the votes in a high school gymnasium, people are not going to want over, uh, not going to say, hey, these are just the people I want to handle my health care, right? So it's a particularly bad problem uh, for the Democrats. The second thing is it deepens the division between Bernie Sanders' uh, uh, side of the party and the regulars in the middle. They know that if Bernie Sanders is at the top of the ticket, he not only will lose, he'll lose so badly, he will carry with him a lot of close races down ballot. He'll cause, uh, he will make it very difficult for the uh, Democrats to win the Senate uh, and to keep the House. So uh, there's just panic in the party over letting him be at the top of the ticket. That has led to mistrust, naturally, between his wing, AOC, Bernie, and so forth, and uh, the sort of center of the party, the old Clintonistas. But they think they had the most votes, and they wanted to be able to claim victory last night, uh, and they couldn't do it. Uh, this, this deepens the problem in the party, and they need a united party if they're to have any chance uh, in um, in November. And the final point is that this is a problem for the whole country. We're, we depend, as a democracy, on the idea that our elections are safe and secure, and that the winner is legitimate winner won his office, president, senator, governor, legitimately. And this this is a wake-up call to how bad things have been deteriorating uh, on uh, along those lines. Yeah, and I, I just go to, to, to the first point you made about this being the party yeah. of government. And this yeah. the, the statement that was made by the Iowa party chairman, you know, hey, look, the app didn't work. But the data was secure. It's such a microcosmic statement of the Democrat socialist philosophy of governance and even just more generally. Hey, look, we built a system and it didn't deliver what it promises to deliver. But no worries, because all that really matters is inputs, not outputs. That's their philosophy of government. <laughs> well, I would say what he was trying to say was uh, no. No votes were lost. No votes sort of went into the ether and were lost. And when we get the final count in, it'll be accurate. I think that's what he was trying to say. But uh, your point is, is a good one, too. Yeah. Uh, Charles Lipson, University of Chicago, professor emeritus of political science. Charles, thanks so much for joining us at the Dan Prof Show. Always good to get your insights. We appreciate your time this evening. 
Thank you, Dan. It's always a pleasure. And uh, one of the other things, and we'll p- pick this up with Ed Morrissey uh, from HotAir.com at the top of the next hour, but uh, one of the other things that you don't need to wait for the other 38% of the precincts in Iowa to be counted to know this, Joe Biden bombed. Joe Biden, he's uh, finished a distant fourth. By the time this is over, it may be fifth behind even Amy Klobuchar. And uh, perhaps the controversy surrounding the administration of the caucus will allow him to minimize the damage. But this is real damage nonetheless. Look for the Democrats to start knocking on the Democrat establishment to start knocking on Mike Bloomberg's door in earnest. This is the Dan Prop Show. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof, and this is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We we're talking with uh, Charles Woodson from the University of Chicago, and I just wanted to pick up our discussion about uh, the Iowa caucus and what it means for Bernie. Uh, interesting piece at 538 blog. This is, uh, you know, Nate Silver and those uh, econometric eggheads over there, you know, the, the money ball types. Uh, the uh, impact of Iowa and the way they look at this is not just in terms of modeling the Democrat primary, um, but modeling it based on the bounce that you get from winning some of these early states. And uh, the, the, per their calculations... Iowa is the second most important date on the calendar in the 2020 cycle, trailing only Super Tuesday. They put it at worth the equivalent of almost 800 delegates or about 20 times the actual number of delegates that will be distributed from Iowa. The way they look at this is because of the media attention, uh, the focus, the duration of that focus leading to the first election of the cycle, the early state bonus they put at uh, combined with uh, the the number of delegates at stake, a combined plus twenty three. That's the the relative bounce magnitude. This uh, sort of uh, uh, measurement they've come up with. Uh, compare that to March third, Super Tuesday, when you've got Colorado, Alabama, Utah, Oklahoma, Vermont, Texas, Tennessee, Maine, Virginia, North Carolina, California, American Samoa, Minnesota, Massachusetts, Arkansas. That's a combined plus 30 in the relative bounce magnitude. The impact magnitude is essentially what they're saying. Iowa plus 23, Super Tuesday plus 30. That's how significant Iowa is just in terms of shaping the race. Now, Bernie's still going to be perceived whether he wins the popular vote and the delegate count or he splits the two with uh, Pete Buttigieg. He's still going to be perceived as a frontrunner. He's stretched out uh, his lead, according to recent polling in New Hampshire. He looks with the election just a week away to be the odds on favorite to win New Hampshire. And with Joe Biden cratering in Iowa, and I I expect that we'll see something akin to that, him start to fade in New Hampshire, his firewall of South Carolina, but that firewall may not hold. And who's most well positioned to capitalize on Joe Biden's faltering? Well, according to some of the uh, exit polling in Iowa, a Biden voter second choice was actually Bernie. Bit surprising. Bit surprising. So you, you still have to look at Bernie, and then you go move ahead to Nevada and to some big Super Tuesday states that's, that are, you know, it's four weeks away. 
not that far away, like California, where currently Bernie is lapping the field, and there are a lot of delegates at stake there. And it does start to come into focus that as much as the left wants to dismiss the idea that Bernie Sanders could ever be the party's nominee, the way this shapes up, particularly if the field stays a bit crowded, you've got four or five or six that can hang around because they exceeded expectations the way Pete Buttigieg did in Iowa or the way Amy Klobuchar did in Iowa. Maybe Amy Klobuchar exceeds expectations in New Hampshire and she gets a little bit more fuel in the tank to keep going. Well, that just... uh, accrues to the benefit of Bernie Sanders, who's got the infrastructure and the energy. Very, very interesting. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to the Dan Proft Show. You can follow us, danproftshow.com, at Twitter, at Dan Proft, or at Dan Proft Show. Phone lines are open, 888-291-2222, 888-291-2222. Taking your calls, reaction to President Trump's State of the Union address and the reactions to the reactions to President Trump's State of the Union address, particularly from Nancy Pelosi. Uh, why don't we uh, bring in our friend Ed Morrissey, editor at HotAir.com, for his color on the evening. And we'll get into the Iowa caucus a little bit more as well. Ed, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, great to be on. Thank you. So uh, your uh, sort of top line takeaway from uh, the president's address tonight. You know, I think what you're seeing here is just a really a conventional State of the Union speech from somebody who has made a living being unconventional. It's kind of surprising, actually. It really was focused on the State of the Union. I mean, it's talking about his administration's successes, and you know that's very normal stuff. But it wasn't all about Trump himself, which is something that you will often see when uh, when Trump is doing rallies and stuff like that. He talks a lot about himself, um, sometimes very humorously, sometimes you know, from you know, he's obviously a great self promoter. Uh, I don't know a successful politician who isn't actually uh, to some extent, but uh, I, I I think I was most struck by the fact that this was really a conventional uh, State of the Union speech, both in content and in structure, and never once mentioned uh, impeachment or any of the investigations that were going on. I was very very surprised at how disciplined this was. Yeah, he, you know, there's uh, kung fu grip Trump uh, at the rallies, and then there's. Uh, <laughs> You know, presidential Trump, and we've seen this before when he's on prompter in a serious environment to give a serious speech. He did it just the other week in Davos, frankly, and this was an extension of that. That was obviously focused strictly on the uh, on matters economic and the blue collar boom, which he touched upon again tonight. But, uh, yeah, this was this was the full panoply of Trump's campaign promises, the promises he's fulfilled the promises he hasn't quite fulfilled, but he's still committed to fulfill prospectively. And uh, he just, you know, walked Democrats and the nation right down the laundry list by topic area. And the and here's something that is signature Trump, whether it's a rally or in a more polished way in a speech like the State of the Union address, uh, without giving any quarter to his political enemies, to those who stand in the way of those commitments. Yeah, you know, but I, I think 
I think you're right about that. I mean, I don't think that he. I think there were times where he got he got sharp, but he got sharp in the normal, conventional ways. You know, pass my legislation, or people are going to die. You know, I mean, I, I'm, that's a reductio ad absurdum. But all presidents do that. They talk about the need to do this, and if you don't do this, dire consequences will follow. It wasn't personal. None of it was personal. No, it was, you no. know, it's, it's it's Michael Corleone. So, you know, it's not personal. You know, it's not personal. It's just business. You know. Uh, so you do a great uh, Pacino, uh, by the way. That's sort of a, a bit, that was uh, very very good. Um, let me <laughs> let, let me uh, let, but, but but there was some things that were that that I think. Um, had an element of the personal, but they weren't presented as such. Uh, you know, uh, again, a subtlety that often isn't Trump's calling card. But he, there was a point to make a mention of Kavanaugh. Yeah, it was Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, but there was a point to make a mention of Kavanaugh specifically. There was a point to have one of his theatrical moments be about uh, sanctuary cities and the violence there and having the brother of somebody who was murdered by a person in this country illegally. There was a point to mention Guaido from Venezuela and have him there and talk about the ravages of socialism in Venezuela so he didn't have to talk about the Democrat socialist platform in this country, but he did so by extension. There was a point to have the Medal of Freedom presented by Melania to Rush Limbaugh in the gallery. I mean, what a moment that was. There, there were some points that he was making not uh, with some texture, but not so subtly. Oh, no, no, I, I, I agree. I mean, I think it was a very good speech, and I think that the, strategically they thought this out very well. I think the difference, though, is that um, you don't normally see Trump execute that this flawlessly, mm. right? Mm. Um, I, I would also say that there's a lot of convention that goes around having people in the dais. You know, you, you, you invite people specifically to highlight their life stories. Right. I, I think the two things that were unusual that we saw there were uh, was the Rush Limbaugh thing. I was surprised. That actually did surprise me. I'd, I had heard that the idea of presenting it to him at the uh, State of the Union address had been considered but then dropped. Um, and that they were just going to announce that he was getting it there. And then the... Um, the reveal of the woman's husband coming back from yeah, Afghanistan. Yeah. Very touching. Yeah. Uh, you could almost say that maybe just a little too showy, you know, just a little too um, theatrical. But I, I think it works because I think people want to see the people come home. And I think that is really what he was emphasizing. We want to bring them all home. And um, and so it's sort of a subtle hint that we're going to have to we're going to have to get out of Afghanistan and they're going to have to do it pretty soon one way or the other. There, there was also uh, a good deal of emphasis on uh, populations that don't normally affiliate with the Republican Party, specifically right. African-American population, and talking about school choice, making that a priority, having a, a mother and daughter there who are going to be the beneficiaries, and, and there would be many more like them if the education scholarships that he wants passed are passed. Uh, in addition to, again, talking about criminal justice reform as he made the choice to do so in one of his Super Bowl commercials. I, I, and again, I mean, I think all of these things are, are very good points. They're points that you would find, you know, especially the school choice thing. I mean, uh, George W. Bush was all over that in his State of the Union speeches. Right. Uh, you know, the, and, they would, and he would bring in people to do these types of things with. And this is what I'm getting at in terms of conventional. I'm not saying conventional in terms of a criticism, right? 
I, I think it was a very good speech, and I think he set it up really well, and I think he really did well. When I'm talking about conventional, this is a chaos agent that we're talking about. This is the guy, and I don't mean to get smart sense, so, you know. Yes, not, is, not know, talking into a shoe phone. You know, yeah, uh, right. Yes. Doing, yeah. you know, uh, but, um, but, I mean, this, he's a chaos agent. He thrives on chaos. He creates chaos in order to push his political opponents into making mistakes. Um, and and it happened anyway today. Nancy Pelosi ripped up the speech yes. while he was still on the dais, which is a stupid thing to do. I mean, it really is a turnoff, I think, to people who expect them expect people to behave better when they're when they're up there. Donald Trump behaved, right? Well, and, yeah, but, and Pelosi couldn't. But but to your point about him being a chaos agent, I mean, not to get uh, <laughs> too metaphysical here, but uh, sometimes right. sometimes being conventional is chaotic. This is, but yeah, exactly. I mean, this is the unexpected, right? This is the unexpected. I think everybody up there was expecting him to go off, to blow up, to, to, to ad lib, go off script, and screw up, right? And I think Republicans were very worried about that. He was going to get on to the impeachment and blah, 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 blah. Never did any of that. Very disciplined, stuck to the plan. And I really think that this is sort of his opening salvo for 2020 to say, you know, you've just heard a bunch of people talking nonsense about me for the last couple of weeks in the Senate trial and you know the, the impeachment stuff. I'm I'm president. <laughs> it's just me being president, and I know how to do this job, and 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 I am doing this job, and I'm doing it right, and uh, and I think that that is going to be something we see a lot more of uh, in Donald Trump. And he's not going to quit tweeting; he's going to do that stuff too. But I think I think that this is his 2020 push that that um, he can be both. He can do both at the same time, and he knows when to pick his moments. Uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, Iowa and uh, uh, and the state of play in the Democrat race for the presidential nomination. Uh, I, I mean, let's just, you know, without uh, belaboring the obvious about uh, the administration of the caucus yesterday, still at 62 percent of precincts reporting as we uh, sit here uh, more than 24 hours after the polls closed uh, or the caucuses com- were completed. But uh, um is Joe Biden, if Joe Biden has a distant fourth or maybe even fifth place finish ultimately in Iowa and starts to fade in New Hampshire into that same position, I mean, is this a candidate, the quote-unquote frontrunner no more, but was for much of this cycle to this point, is this a candidate that even makes it to Super Tuesday? Oh, sure. He's got too much backing to 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 not make it to Super Tuesday. I mean, unless he has a health issue, he's going to make it to Super Tuesday. You know, you get down to South Carolina, things change. Mm-hmm. Um, he was never going to win Iowa anyway. He needed to finish better than he did, but he was never going to win Iowa anyway. Um, I, I, I think that um, the question, part of what's going to happen here, too. Well, the question, is, though, just on South Carolina, you know, South Carolina, South Carolina, South Carolina, that's his firewall. You know, uh, firewalls have been pierced before, particularly if you uh, have wildly underwhelming performances. And uh, that's where he is right now. True, true. Things can change. And um, but but you got to remember that his base of voters, his, his, especially among African-Americans, is extremely strong. And there's really no other candidate for them to go to. Uh, they're not going to go to Bernie. They're not going to go to uh, Pete Buttigieg by any stretch of the imagination. They're never going to go. They're never going to swing over to Pete Buttigieg unless he's the last man standing. Uh, and I don't think they go to Elizabeth Warren either. So, I, I mean, he has really got uh, a lot of loyalty with those voters. With those uh, voters. So. He is Ed Morrissey, senior editor for HotAir.com. Ed, thanks so much for joining us on the Dan Prof Show. Appreciate it. 
Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof, and this is The Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to The Dan Prof Show. Uh, phone lines are open, one 888 291-2222. That's 888-291-2222. And uh, we're going to get back to our friend Ed Morrissey from HotAir.com. But uh, Nick in Des Moines, you're on the Dan Prop Show. Hey, Nick. Hey there, Dan. Uh, I'm from Des Moines. Just uh, had two quick points. One, I do uh, lift driving around town here, and I could have told you that Joe Biden was going down in flames about a week ago because I've not seen a single sign for him out here nor met a single person who said they were for Joe Biden. Um, and two, what did the Democrats not learn from the last State of the Union when they weren't clapping for lowest unemployment rates for blacks and for Asians and Hispanics and women and everything, and they just sat on their hands? And I thought it was a bad look for them then. Apparently, they didn't learn anything this State of the Union either. I, I can't believe it. It's just like ridiculous to me good points thanks for the call nick appreciate it uh getting back to our friend ed morrissey ed uh just bring you in on the topic uh with respect to uh with respect to biden we were talking about that um so you know biden's not going away overnight but um do you do you, do you sense that uh, establishment types that were sort of defaulting to Biden now you know giving him the b teamers like john Kerry to try and prop him up in iowa a little bit you sense that the, rather than trying to prop him up, they're going to start uh, really trying to size up Mike Bloomberg as their option? Possibly. I mean, possibly. Mike Bloomberg's got an awful lot of money. He's willing to spend his own cash. Uh, that that presents issues for Democratic power brokers, too, because then they're going to have less influence over what he does. I mean, it's sort of a Trump issue uh, on, the, on the flip side of this, right? Um, but they know Bloomberg pretty well. He's more of a conventional politician, so there's less concern over over those uh, over those issues. But look, um, Biden's a guy. He's been the guy the whole time. I mean, this is the guy who is who's got the connection to the glorious, you know, Obama past, so to speak. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm using scare quotes here. Yes. But um, but he's a guy that they've thrown in with. Uh, I think that. If Biden can't get it together by the time you roll around to Super Tuesday, then they're going to start worrying about this stuff. But the, the one thing I do want to say about the Iowa thing is I think that the, the, they screwed it up so badly in Iowa that nobody's going to take these results that seriously anyway. First off, we're talking about a small number of delegates. But secondly, I don't know that anybody actually operated the caucuses properly to, to generate these results. Uh, it, it, there's a lot of questions about how this was implemented. There was a lot of new rules about you couldn't change your position, even if you changed your mind sort of thing. I don't know how those rules were enforced, whether they weren't enforced in some cases. I think that they've really got a big credibility problem on these particular results. And I'm, I'm not sure that Iowa's going to have any impact on this. Well, right. And this this was Nate Silver's point I mentioned uh, last hour talking about uh, the bounce that's anticipated out of Iowa. And, you know, their categories of trying to measure these things and model the uh, the election season. Uh, they put Iowa's the second most important date on the calendar right behind Super Tuesday in terms of in terms of bounce because of all the media attention and the duration of all the media attention that leads into this day. 
And uh, all of that has been blunted by the administration of the election, like you say. But but still, you you still have some that you know people coming out of this who overperformed Klobuchar. It looks like, and Buttigieg in particular, and and why not Buttigieg? Why not the novelty, a party that's beset by identity politics? We're going to make history. Why not? We're going to make history with the first gay president. Uh, why not the guy that at least speaks in a room temperature tone of voice, even if he's saying a lot of the same things that Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren are saying. He's just not saying we're going to get there quite as quickly. Why is there not more uh, uh, of, of, of a gravitation towards Buttigieg as a possible uh, plan B if Biden, if Biden falters? Two, two reasons. One is he's got a very contentious relationship with African-American voters, just does. There's been issues in his in, in his administration in South Bend, Indiana. The second reason is he's the mayor of South Bend, Indiana. Yep. That's the that's the that's the the, the the apex of what he has done so far. Uh, he's he's not a Donald Trump or even a Mike Bloomberg who got into politics after making a huge success in the business world. He's not a Barack Obama who wrote a couple of wrote one really interesting book uh, and and transformed himself from a first term senator into a into a, uh, a legitimate presidential contender. This is a guy who's mayor of a, of, a, of a town whose population, I think it was um, David Harsanyi who mentioned this uh, earlier this week, so, whose population is the same as New York City's was in 1810. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yeah, it's, no, it, 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 right. it's hard to take that seriously. It, no, it is. But um, but but there's at least a significant subset of the Democrat primary electorate that is I, perhaps that's for want of a better option. I mean, I, I know we keep hearing that this is no, no, no. We're satisfied with the primary. Uh, we're satisfied with the field of candidates we have. We're just we're having a difficulty, a difficult time making the decision between so many qualified candidates. I know that's the narrative that the DNC is telling us. I'm not so sure that's what a lot of Democrat primary voters are actually feeling. No, I, I, I think that that's right. I mean, and you take a look. I think the big news out of Iowa wasn't really the uh, well. It was. It was the. It was the way they screwed up the caucusing. But, but the biggest news out of that was the turnout. The turnout didn't change. They were expecting a huge, you know, a huge rollout of enthusiasm to get Donald Trump out of office. And the turnout, I think, is almost identical to what it was four years ago. Plus, NBC News reported today um, that. The number of new caucusers, new participants, dropped from 44 percent four years ago to 35 percent this year. They just don't have that kind of enthusiasm, and I think that's their biggest issue. I don't think I don't think um, Buttigieg solves that. He is Ed Morrissey, senior editor at HotAir.com. Ed, thanks so much for joining us on the Dan Prof Show. Appreciate it. Thank you, Dan. All right, um, before we go to break, let's uh, grab our friend Joe in Columbus, Ohio. Joe, you're on the Dan Prof Show. Yes, uh, Dan, how you doing? This is Joe, first-time caller from Columbus, Ohio. Great. Uh, um, yes, sir. Um, what a, a lot of folks don't realize is that uh, we're – if you can't do research on Agenda 21 and Agenda 2030, I'm not sure if you or your listener have, have ever heard of it. Yeah. It's mm -hmm. called the Sustainable Development. Sustainable Development. You'll hear about this on the news throughout the years. Uh, this is like, uh, it's not a conspiracy theory. It's a conspiracy. Uh, it's a one-world government. Okay, Trump is not for this one-world government. He's for to build us up. The one-world government is uh, is when 
they want to tear down America and bring in all these folks from another country so they could destroy America. Well, and bring in the martial law. Yeah, I'm okay? I'm familiar with the the Agenda 21 issue, but but the the I think the more the the larger issue you're talking about, which was mentioned in Trump's say the Union address, is this idea uh, promoted by Democrat socialists and frankly every Democrat running for president that there should be no difference between American citizens and people here illegally when it comes to taxpayer funded benefits. That's a that's not in Trump's world. That's not the case. And it is for every Democrat presidential candidate. And that's a stark choice he presented to the American people. This is the Dan Prop Show. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Phone lines open 888-291-2222, 888-291-2222. Uh, take your calls, get your reactions to the State Union address, and, and you know, perhaps we'll start here just because I got a, a fun text about uh, Nancy Pelosi ripping up the president's speech uh, immediately after he had finished completed as he's leaving the dais to leave the chamber. Uh but the the text uh, she gave him a TV ad that will run every day until November. Trump is truth serum. He turns people into their true selves, and they are powerless to stop it. Unreal. He, he really he's like human sodium pentothal. He really is. It's, it's remarkable. I can't stop myself from being myself, and particularly when it comes to politicians who you know pantomime being actual human beings, it is that much more deadly. Uh, I, I love, yeah, the idea of Trump as human sodium pentothal. Uh, he is, uh, it's just remarkable. Uh, Jim in Naperville, you're on the Dan Prof Show. Dan, you're absolutely right. You know, the optics tonight were just uh, unbelievable. I, I rarely watch TV. I, I listen to uh, radio, okay? And, uh, but uh, because of, I, there's hardly, what TV do you watch, right? <laughs> Even Fox, I have, I've given up on a long time ago. But that said, the optics were unbelievable, uh, and the, uh, the the idea that, that what killed it was Nancy Pelosi ripping up what most people would consider as a historical document, okay, of of her copy uh, behind the desk or behind the president, and and she tore it to shreds, which just shows that they have total disdain for history altogether. They want to rewrite history. They don't want to face the facts that Trump pointed out. They won't acknowledge the facts that he pointed out. And I'll, I'll, I'll be, I'll, I'll, I can't wait to see how many Pinocchios, who gives what, but it'll expose them as well. He exposes these people. He brings out the cockroaches from out of the woodwork and shines a light on them, and they fall for it every time. Thanks for the call, Jim. Appreciate it. Again, phone lines 888-291-2222, 888-291-2222, if you want to uh, to join in the conversation. Uh, the, um, the, the way that he gets under people's skin is really remarkable. 
I mean, you know, it's, I don't know what it is exactly. I, I, I think, well, I think I do know a little bit what it is because look, there's always people, you know, I don't like this person, this person's personality or whatever. This person's a political opponent. And of course, you know, every Republican is, gets treated with the same, uh, invective, you know, you're Hitler, you're, you're, uh, you're this ism, you suffer from this ism and from this phobia and so on and so forth. I mean, George W. Bush was George H. W. Bush, Reagan. It doesn't matter so much. The difference is, and I guess in this way, Trump is uh, the closest thing to Reagan, but obviously a very different personality, very different communication style. It, it, I go, I, I just keep coming back to this point. He will not provide any aid and comfort to his enemies. I mean, uh, perhaps you could argue, as I have before, that he punches down and that inadvertently provides aid and comfort to his enemies. But he will give them no quarter. He will not apologize for the positions he takes, for the people he supports, for the arguments that he makes, for the personnel choices that he installs. He will not apologize. He will not demur either. You're not supposed to put it right between their eyes when it comes to the way he talks about immigration and border security, for example, as he did tonight. You're not supposed to take them to task with a frontal assault like that. You're supposed to to talk in those fortune cookie bromides that he dismissed out of hand right at the beginning of his speech. And he won't do it. He just will not give them any quarter. And more to the point, you want to come at me, then you better be ready when I come at you, because that will be the reaction. And I got to say, it is just absolutely delightful on so many levels, particularly and most importantly, when you're getting the policy choices right. And for the most part, he has been. And per tonight, he's committed to stay the course. This is the Dan Prof Show. We'll be back with more of your calls. 888-291-2222. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. Dan Prof, and this is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. And uh, Trump started off his State of the Union speech tonight focused, well, he gave a bit of a summary, but it was very much focused on the American economy. Three years ago, we launched the great American comeback. Tonight, I stand before you to share the incredible results. Jobs are booming. Incomes are soaring. Poverty is plummeting. Crime is falling. Confidence is surging. And our country is thriving and highly respected again. Yeah, and then uh, some of the data to back up those statements. Since my election, we have created 7 million new jobs. 
5 million more than government experts projected during the previous administration. If we hadn't reversed the failed economic policies of the previous administration, the world would not now be witnessing this great economic success. Yeah, and uh, there was some uh, some uh, nervous uh, energy on the Democrat caucus there. I don't know why. Haven't all their presidential candidates been criticizing uh, Obama and Clinton for not being aggressive enough, progressive enough? But I guess this is... Uh, a criticism from the other angle. The other uh, point that President Trump made, which is an important one, and I want to get lost, we talk a lot about jobs created, but that necessarily means people no longer living lives of dependency, people taking ownership of their own lives again. It's not just about uh, dollars and cents. It's not just about job stats. It's about giving people dominion over their own lives again. Under the last administration, more than 10 million people were added to the food stamp rolls. Under my administration, 7 million Americans have come off food stamps and 10 million people have been lifted off of welfare. How about it? How about it? Uh, President Trump also talked about uh, particular. I mean, he went through all the unemployment stats, how they're, you know, the lowest in recorded history among every racial demographic, uh, age demographic, and so on and so forth. But he also uh, pointed up the uh, prospects of energy independence uh, and, uh, and the revitalization of manufacturing, thanks in part to lifting regulations. The other part, the undertold story of Trump's first three years, yes, the tax cuts, yes, a lot of focus on trade deals, Regulatory relief. Thanks to our bold regulatory reduction campaign, the United States has become the number one producer of oil and natural gas anywhere in the world. America is now energy independent and energy jobs, like so many other elements of our country, are at a record high. And that means American manufacturers can be powered by American energy. We are doing numbers that no one would have thought possible just three years ago. Likewise, we are restoring our nation's manufacturing might, even though predictions were, as you all know, that this could never, ever be done. After losing 60,000 factories under the previous two administrations, America has now gained 12,000 new factories under my administration, with thousands upon thousands of plants and factories being planned or being built. The only aspect of that that I wish he would have developed a little bit more to address the climate change hysterics, to address those who uh, are attempting to indoctrinate young people from pre-K through post-secondary education, this idea that uh, the world is going to end in 10 years, that that we are doing irreparable damage to the planet, that we are the problem, that we should de-industrialize our economy. Wish you would have addressed those arguments straight away with the evidence, because, by the way, even somebody successful in business. Well, like Tom Steyer, billionaire who made his billions in fossil fuels and now, of course, wants to be fossil fuel free because that's where the orthodoxy is on the left. Bloomberg's doing the same thing. He's got commercials out saying the same thing. Fossil fuel by 20 fossil fuel free by 2030. That is nonsense. Absolute nonsense. Anybody who says that is an unserious person, frankly, a dangerous person. 
They're either a liar or a zealot. You pick. Here's the fact. 80% of U.S. energy comes from fossil fuels at present, and that's not going to change over the next, not just decade, the next three decades, really. Not materially. And this is not to say that uh, I'm opposed to clean nuclear energy. I'm opposed to renewable energy. No, of course not. But it's got to go at market pace, not central planner's pace. And that's a big difference. And I wish Trump would have illustrated that. Here's the data. And this is from the Energy Information Administration. Over the last 70 years, U.S. total energy consumption has increased by threefold. Over just the last about uh, 15 years, annual U.S. carbon dioxide emissions have decreased by 15%. Projected to decrease by a quarter by 2030. So here's what we're doing. We're consuming more energy, yes, but through innovation, we're becoming more efficient with our consumption, with our production and consumption of energy. We're, uh, we're shrinking our carbon footprint. Now compare that with India and China, and this, of course, is the message to uh, Greta and the grown-up versions of Greta who are all running for president on the Democrat side. Talk about India and China and Turkey and the rest of the uh, relatively industrialized world, first and second world countries and third world countries, for that matter, the big ones like the world's biggest democracy, India. You're not serious about uh, energy efficiency, about uh, uh, redistributing your portfolio of energy options if you don't address those countries and the energy choices they're making, particularly versus America, who you like to beat up on, but without basis. It would have been nice for him to put that right between their eyes uh, and part of his larger energy independence discussion because of so much misinformation, so much pollution, if you will, spread by Democrat socialists on this topic. I'm Dan Proft. Fake news. He's always got the real story. This is the Dan Prof Show. You are fake news. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. And uh, some uh, interesting polling out today, which provides uh, an important backdrop to both uh, President Trump's State of the Union address this evening, as well as the results in Iowa and uh, how things are trending for the Democrat socialists. And maybe this is what uh, President Trump slipped Nancy Pelosi that she uh, tore up. It wasn't the State of the Union. It was this uh, Wall Street Journal NBC poll about socialism, attitudes among Americans about capitalism and socialism. There's been a lot of emphasis. I know I've prattled on about it quite a bit of the uh, disturbing numbers of Americans under the age of 40 who are wooed by the siren song of socialism. But, um, you know, that's a segment of the population. The numbers are still disturbing, but it's not necessarily reflective of where the center of gravity is in America. And this is what the NBC uh, Wall Street Journal poll tried to suss out. It's not good news for uh, Bolshevik Bernie and the Democrat socialists. 
52% of those surveyed, the entire electorate, viewed capitalism positively. Just 19% said the same about socialism. 52 to 19, favorable about capitalism versus socialism. 18% had a negative view of capitalism. 53, of course, the numbers are uh, reversed or inverse. 53% view socialism negatively. So 52 to 18 for pro-capitalism, 19 to 53 anti-socialism or for socialism, but you get the point. So that is a a big spread, and that's a big problem for a party that is effectively, whether by name or by substantive policy proposal, running on a platform of government controlling more and more of the means of production. It's just an argument about pace, but not about uh, destination. Uh, Democrat primary voters have a net positive impression of socialism, but it's not the biggest as big a spread as you might think. Forty to twenty three. The fact that four in ten Democrats have a positive impression of socialism is disturbing. But that's driven by 18 to 34 year olds, a majority of whom view socialism favorably. And I would suggest a majority of that that 51 percent probably don't really even understand their implications. Uh, but it, it provides a little bit more context, a little bit more framework for uh, 2020. And this is why President Trump made the point to take out after socialism today, whether it comes in the form of the DNC platform or it comes in the form of socialism and practice in Venezuela. And that capitalism versus socialism binary is not going away. And according to these numbers, it redounds to the benefit of President Trump and Republicans Thank you for joining us on the Dan Prof Show. It's been a pleasure. Join us again tomorrow night. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show.